You're listening to the Art of Dying Well podcast, making death and dying something we can all talk about. Well, it's November, it's getting colder, and November is that month where we remember, quite literally, whether that's our war dead, whether it's those loved ones, family members, friends that have, that have died. It's a very important month. And what I've done this time round on the Art of Dying Well podcast is come down here to South Kensington in London to the Brompton Oratory, which is the Oratory of St. Philip Neary, the Church of the Immaculate Heart of Mary, very big Catholic church in the centre of London. And I'm going to be speaking to Father George Bowen about exactly why November is a good time to, to remember the dead and what exactly we can do in church to think about this. Let's go inside. Well, it's certainly a bit more peaceful in here. I'm joined by Father George Bowen. Father George, how are you? I'm very well indeed. Welcome to this huge church. Huge um, and beautiful and church. very beautiful church. Um, yeah. It's amazing, isn't it? Because whenever I come into this wonderful church, I look around and, and sometimes I see a lot, but mm. I don't necessarily take it all in. There's <laughs> a lot to take in. There is indeed. And, and we're here today to talk about praying for the dead, the yeah. holy souls, why we pray for the dead, why it's important. And I guess as a Catholic priest, your stock and trade is a little bit beyond the here and now, isn't it? It's not just about this world and what we do here. And life doesn't just end at the point of our death, does it? No, it certainly doesn't, no. And in many ways, what I, I think this church in particular helps us do is to put our experience of life into a different perspective. It's an enormous church. It's decorated in the sort of Roman Baroque style with lots and lots of statues, sculptures all around the walls, and a painted ceiling with lots of angels and saints. St. Paul, in, in his letter to the Corinthians, talks about our experience in life as if we're living in a tent, that we're living on a journey, and that we're living in a temporary place, and that we need to fold up that tent because there's going to be a house built for us in heaven. And in a way, when we walk into a church like this, what it reminds us of is the house which is prepared for us in the next world. It's meant to do that, really. It's meant to, to put this world into a different perspective. So to start with, it's very high. This, the church, the oratory, is a very tall church, enormously tall. It's one of the tallest churches, I think, in this country, and decorated with lots of statues and sculptures um, and paintings of all the angels and saints and the virtues which we need to put into practice down here on earth as we travel through life in order to prepare ourselves for the house that's been prepared for us in the world to come. So that's the first, I think, important thing to think about is that when we, when we come together, we're coming together as a community to pray, whether we come in on our own or whether we come together as a community to pray um, at the Mass. What we're doing is being made conscious of the fact that we're joined in our prayers with the angels and saints in heaven. And what we need to do is to pray for each other. When we pray together in the Mass, we begin by saying all the ways in which we've sinned through our faults and what we've done and what we've failed to do. We say, pray for me, all my brothers and sisters here, pray for me to the Lord our God. In other words, we're begging all the people in the church and all the angels and saints to pray for me as an individual. And all of us are doing that together collectively. We're all asking for prayers for ourselves. 
And what we do in November is to realize that the souls that have left this world are souls which are needing our prayers just as we pray, was just as we say down here, pray for me to the Lord our God and that I be washed clean of all that I've done wrong. So in a strange kind of a way, when we're praying for the holy souls, we're lifting these holy souls up to God in our prayers. So talking about those connections, really, that help us pray for the dead and settle our mind, I suppose, onto something a bit more eternal and, and not so much of this world. But we still need that anchor here, don't we, to help with that? Yeah, we do. We do. And it's, it's, it's the, the idea that we've got a place that helps us reflect differently about the experience of living in this world. Isaiah talked about the people who had been sent away from their homeland had been deported from, from Israel. He was, describes them as if they're wearing a mourning veil. And what was a mourning veil? A mourning veil was a veil that you put over your face in order to show the world that you were feeling inward pain and you wanted to shut yourself away from the experience of the world. And he said that there'll be a moment when the mourning veil is going to be removed. But the, the thing about living behind a mourning veil is that we become enclosed. And when the mourning veil is removed, suddenly we can see into the distance. And Isaiah painted the picture of climbing a mountain so that we had the world and saw the world in a totally different perspective. Now that is really what we're trying to do in a church like this, is to try and, architecturally speaking, to say, look at the world differently from the world just outside the door there where you've just come from with all the noise of the, of the traffic in the streets of London. When you come in here, you're encouraged, just by the, the building, really, to see the world in a different perspective. And you mentioned there um, about light of candles being lit. Well, all of these candles are little uh, examples of prayer. People coming to light a candle in memory of somebody that's died, maybe, or a prayer that they're praying for themselves or their loved ones. So all of these are little visual images of prayer. I love that Isaiah quote about lifting the veil. So shall we, metaphorically, walk around this lovely church and lift the veil and look at some of these things that help us connect with God and, and pray for the dead? Absolutely. Let's do that thing. So, Father George, what, what have we arrived at here? So this is near the door of the church is um, the war memorial, which was put up for the, um, all of those that had died in, in the First World War. Huge numbers of, of people mentioned by name on, in, in, the, in great scrolls made of marble. Lots of them Irish names. Of course, this church was built at a time when this area was a very poor, and now it's a wealthy area, but it was a very poor area. And lots of people, um, Irish people, would live around here. Catholics um, and they would come and and so and come to mass here and so it's hardly surprising that there'd be an awful lot of Irish names carved into the walls of this uh, of this little shrine for those that have died and over the top of it you've got um, the words in Latin it is a phrase which is difficult for us to understand nowadays dulce et decorum est pro patria mori it is a beautiful and noble thing to die for your country. I suppose out in the Ukraine, people are thinking along those lines. They would understand that, but we find that a difficult idea to, to, to grasp in the world in which we live. But we're confronted by that reality, and much more, I suppose, in the world in which we live now. And then you've got this magnificent sculpture of the, of the Pieta, of Our Lady Mary holding the body of her son, Jesus, cradling him, just in the way, same way that he he was cradled in her arms when he was a tiny baby so she's cradling the body of her son her dead son in her arms as he's taken down from the cross and i'm particularly struck by her left hand holding supporting christ's 
left hand. It's very beautiful, isn't it? It is, and it's actually interesting because it's, it's, it, she's holding the hand out, his hand out towards us, mm. and we can see the marks of the nail that have been driven through in his palm. And so it's almost as if she's saying, here, this is for you. I'm holding this hand out for you that are standing here. And remember always that he suffered and died just as you have to suffer in your life, and you will die, but he's there with you and he's been there alongside you all the time. It's quite symbolic, isn't it? Because we still return, even though there are, you know, whether you're saying 1939 to 1945, 1914 mm. to 1918, and other conflicts. I, I'm, I'm sure a lot of people come here thinking of, of their loved ones that have died in other wars around the world. It's a very cosmopolitan area, London, isn't it? So I'm sure it many thoughts are gathered here. It is, it is, absolutely. And the laying down of, of weapons inside of a bit of the sort of the decoration in the church, you've got the picture of the weapons being laid down. So that's another reminder of the fact that we want peace, really. These people died to try and bring peace to the world in which they were living, peace in their homeland, should we say. They wanted a peaceful homeland, and they were dying to defend that sense of peace. Beautiful. So, Father George, we've just walked down the right-hand side here and arrived at a beautiful sculpture of St. Camillus. And obviously, that's relevant when we talk about health care and caring for the dying. Absolutely. St. Camillus um, de Lelis was a, a great follower of St. Philip Neri. This church is, um, of course, uh, you're, you're in the oratory, which was founded by St. Philip Neri, and Camillus was hugely influenced by St. Philip. St. Philip used to work among the sick and dying in Rome in the hospitals then. And people that went to hospital, frankly, most of them wouldn't have survived. Um, one has to remember that basically medicine was pretty simple. But Camillus created a whole religious order, the Camillans as they were known, to work precisely for those who were dying in hospitals. So it's an, an appropriate saint for us to sort of stop and pause before when we're thinking of people that are suffering unto death in that sense. The experience of, of journeying towards the next world and having priests and, and, and religious people helping us, not only in terms of what they were doing, of course, nursing, but also bringing a sense of perspective on life to those that were with risk of, of, of losing their lives. How do you see that outstretched hand? Is that stretched out to God? That's a good question, actually, and I hadn't thought of it before. I think he's probably... I think what Camillus is doing there is, I'd see it, is that he's invoking hmm. God. He's calling up to God. He's saying, come here, come in here, come in and, and, and look after and come near to these people who are suffering because you're the Lord that suffered for us. Come in and give comfort to those that are suffering. And that very much feels to me like when we look at our saints, people that we can relate to, people that walk the earth, being that conduit to God, you get a good sense of that. Absolutely. And actually that sort of leads on into the chapel that we're in, which is the chapel um, dedicated, very noble chapel near the door, so that it's easily accessible in a big chapel because it was a very popular saint. And that's the Saint Mary Magdalene. Mm. And Saint Mary Magdalene was archetypally this, the, a woman that was a broken, fallen woman in need who came across the Lord and had been cast away by society. And she'd found succor with Jesus and learnt to love again properly in the ways that she probably hadn't been learning how to love in her past life. She was being taught by Christ how to love properly and that's what we all need to learn how to do in our lives, to realize that down here in this journey that we're making through life, 
when we're living under canvas, so to speak, in the tent that's the only home that we know down here, this temporary home that we're really learning how to love. And underneath the altar of St. Mary, with a big picture of St. Mary Magdalene, is the relics of a saint who is a Roman martyr. We know nothing about him other than his name, Saint Eutropius. His relics were given, the remains of his body, was given to this church by the Pope at the time in order to sort of celebrate the building of this church. And Saint Eutropius, we know nothing about him other than the fact that he gave his life up for his faith. He would have been one of the early Roman martyrs. We don't know how early. It could be that he was even sat at the feet of Saint Peter and Paul in Rome, um, we don't know. But we know that his body was buried in, in, in the graves, in the catacombs outside Rome, alongside many other very ancient martyrs in the Roman church. So we've got there a reminder of how your life can be changed and transformed in Christ and become over the body, the remains of this saint, mass is celebrated, the Christ comes down to us in the form of the Eucharist. And you know, you make me think when you talk about St. Mary Magdalene, and, and helping us to learn how to love. You know, that, that phrase, life is changed, not ended, I think about what comes next. Not just praying for the dead, but we can still love our loved ones after they've died, can't we? That love does not stop. Far from it. I mean, what we've, what we've, what we've been doing down here is, is to learn how to love in order to carry on loving and to make use of the love that we've learnt, all the lessons in love that we've learnt down here, that we put them into practice in the world to come, very much so. I think that's the important thing. I mean, lessons in loving is what we're learning down here in one way or another. And part of those lessons of loving is learning how to pray for other people, not least praying for the dead praying for those who have died, because in that way we're doing something charitable, and we don't get thanked for that on earth, but in faith we realize that we're doing something beautiful and noble, and that's what matters. Love isn't about what we get in return so much as what we're doing for other people, and that act of generosity is something that we use very much and we focus on in this month of November when we're praying for those that have died. And we've just gone past a, a box uh, where one can make a donation for the Holy Souls. Tell me this as a, as a Catholic priest, what exactly do we do in November when people say, oh, you know, the lists for the holy souls are down by the altar, we're, we're praying for the dead in our masses throughout November. What exactly do we mean and, and where does purgatory come into that? I think what we need to understand about purgatory is that purgatory is a place of healing. And I think that the, the moment, the, the way that we think of Jesus, sometimes we get this wrong. I think if we were to say to Jesus, how do you want us to see you? How do you want us to imagine you? And I think more than anything, I think what he would say is, I want you to remember that I'm the Lord of love and the sacred heart of Jesus. We've just passed another altar, which is the sacred heart of the altar of the sacred heart of Jesus, which is, if you like, quintessentially Jesus presenting himself as the Lord of love. But that inside of this picture here, that is to say, I love you and I want to wash you clean of all that isn't beautiful in you. Because what we need to do is to understand that we need to be washed clean, just like a mother would clean us and cleanse us of all that was unclean when we were tiny little babies and needed our mothers, our parents, mothers and fathers, to keep us pure and clean, if you like, when we were tiny. Um, so in a sense, what the Lord is, wants to do is to come near to us and wash us clean, like he did for the disciples before sitting down at the Last Supper. And purgatory is really the place where we get washed clean. I say place, it's the state of being washed clean. It's the experience of being washed clean. And of course, painful, why is purgatory ever thought of as being a painful experience? Well, because we've got so accustomed and used 
to the kind of hardened carapace on the outside of ourselves. Mm. Um, we need to have that purified and that's painful because we're having to say goodbye to bits of us which we associate as being intrinsic to us, but they're not. They're not intrinsic to us, they're extrinsic. They're not important because they're not things that make us beautiful. All the things that we think make us beautiful, so much of it's not true. And in purgatory, we realize for the first time what is really intrinsically beautiful about us. And that's all that makes us look like the divine son. All that God loves in us is what's beautiful. And that's only what's beautiful. And that's the part that needs to remain for us to be able to enjoy the vision of paradise and the experience of the, the full joy of being fully alive with God in paradise in heaven. Very well said. So onwards, where should we go? Well, I, I tell you what, we're passing a confessional. We've got a couple of confessionals at the Oratory Church, which are rather remarkable. So you've got sculptures on the outside. And here you've got a confessional, 19th century confessional, with on one side, flanked by angels. One is holding um, a slate with a sponge and is wiping the slate clean. And that symbolizes what happens in confession, that we're washed clean. And the other angel holds the keys, the keys to the kingdom of heaven. So in other words, those sculptures around the edges of the confessional are saying to us, through the experience of being washed clean down here, just in the same way that we've been talking about holy souls being washed clean in purgatory, but we anticipate that in the sacrament of reconciliation, when we confess and hand over our sins. What we're doing is doing exactly what is going to happen to us um, willy-nilly when we're in purgatory. So the angel is washing clean sins and opening the doors to heaven. This is a sacrament that brings joy. It's a hugely positive sacrament because it's a sacrament of healing. I mean, at the end of the day, we wouldn't run away from the idea of going to a doctor if we were ill physically. Well, why should we run away from the possibility of being spiritually healed just in the same way as we have on, on offer, if you like, in our local surgery? And actually, you've been a hospital chaplain for many years, as we've, we've said before on this podcast. Are those the types of conversations you frequently have with those that, that are dying? Yes. Often what one wants to try and do as a priest is to try and help people focus their attention away from the suffering that they're experiencing at the moment towards the possibility of, of having a place prepared for them in heaven. And would, so to try and open up a vision for them. What I try and do in, in hospital, if I have the, have the opportunity, is to try and reframe the experiences that they're, that they're undergoing in hospital at the moment and their suffering, to reframe it. And if it's terminal suffering, which it often is, that you reframe it and say, look, listen, you're going towards life. You're not going away from life, you're going towards life. And you're going towards warmth and, and you're going towards the sunshine of God's love. And that must be the principal job of a chaplain in many ways, because a lot of people have fear of the unknown. And I know these are matters of faith for all of us. But do you think a, a big part of a chaplain's role is to reassure that it doesn't end just here and that there is more and you don't need to be afraid? I think that's absolutely the case. It's, uh, it's, it's, it's to try and offer hope. The gift of hope and the gift of faith are, are, are intrinsically entwined. And what you're doing is to try and say, look, listen, what are you hoping for? What is it worth hoping for in our lives? What do we actually invest hope in? And most of the time, as we know, we don't really invest hope in the right things. We can talk about that when we come to the, to the altar of St. Philip, because I'll, I've got one or two things, a little story to tell you about St. Philip and hope. But I think that's really what we're trying to do. We, we become agents in trying to help people um, discover what it means to be in hope and to what to hope for in our lives. 
Do you think we might stop off at the altar for the English martyrs? The only reason I ask that is that the word martyr, for some people, evokes a negative image, something quite frightening. But actually, we celebrate our martyrs in the Catholic Church, don't we? We do very much so. We honour them and we celebrate them. And uh, let's definitely do that. Let's do that. Let's do it. So, Father George, we're here at the altar for the English martyrs. And what a striking scene the centrepiece is there. I mean, obviously, you can see the sort of prism-shaped scaffold of Tyburn, where we yeah. know many of the, the, mart- the early martyrs died. It's quite, quite a sombre scene, isn't it, really? It is. It's a brutal picture in lots of ways, flanked by St Thomas More, St John Fisher. And you've got this picture of Tyburn, which, of course, is very near to... The, the site of it's very near to this church of the Oratory. It was up in Marble Arch in central London, where the gallows were. And people were put to death in this horrific way of being hung, drawn and quartered, which was supposed to be the most shocking way to kill somebody in those days, to put them off the idea of the crime of treason for which they were being executed. I mean, they dressed up the fact that they were professing their faith as Catholics as as something treasonable, and so that was what they were being put to death for. And we can lose that sense of the fact that death can be a very horrible experience because we're surrounded by, in our culture, we have morphine and we have pain control and we're not confronted by the agony. People used to talk about the agony of death. Well, this was why it was so important in the old days to have, uh, in the ancient times, before the discovery of pain control, proper modern pain control, the importance of trying to find ways of helping people see past the agony that they would experience of pain in the experience of dying. I mean, of course, this was particularly horrific, but it's something that can teach us. You know, listen, these people had faith, and their faith is what they clung on to, and this way of being put to death for what they were doing was incidental, as far as they were concerned, to the fact that they could see beyond this world into the next, to what awaited them, the other side of death, the fullness of life. When you read many of these accounts, although we look upon a very terrifying, brutal scene, they went to their deaths quite often with, with confidence, didn't they? Oh, very much so. I think that was the case. I mean, they went there because they had the one opportunity to, to back away from this and say, look, do you know something? I don't think I, um, I'm not sure about this. After all, I can change my mind. I'm going to conform um, and give up what I'm doing. But they saw beyond the situation that they were in to the reality that awaited them at the other side. Yeah, they were hoping in something much more beautiful the other side of, the, of this world. That was what inspired their faith, that animated their faith to practice their faith as Catholics in a, in a very hostile world. Where should we move on to now? The neighbouring altar is quite interesting. It's, it's actually, in a way, it's, it's, it's got something to, to tell us not so much about dying, but about thanking God for the answers to our prayers. This is an altar, not particularly special-looking, picture above the altar of Our Lady of Good Counsel. It's it's an altar which has got a picture of a Madonna and child. But what I find interesting about it is you've got underneath it lots of little votive offerings of thanks. Little silver sort of tin, um, silver or golden looking um, little presents which were given to Mary in answer to prayers. And these almost certainly would have been people that had been spared. This would have been um, that they would have people would have said maybe mothers and parents of children going off to the war please you know look after and protect my child 
that he survives the, the experience of, of fighting. And so these medals, these little votive offerings are framed. Rather unusual, looks a bit weird really, lots of little pictures of hearts inside of a, a golden frame, but that's what they're there for. I suppose there would have been cheap tin ones and more expensive ones in there as well. But they're all of them some little ways of saying thank you, thank you to Mary. They're just little tokens. They're little tokens of saying, I'm giving you something back. Mm. I believe that you've given me your prayers. You've given us your prayers for the safe passage of my child through the experience of fighting in a war. And I'm giving you back this little prayer. I think that's what they suggest in a way. The Art of Dying Well podcast is available on Amazon, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts and more. Just search on your preferred platform. So, so we are in front of the main altar to Our Lady, which is a very, very beautiful altar, brought in pieces. It was brought back from Italy in the 19th century when the, in, a move, in an anti-clerical movement. We've got the statue of Our Lady in the middle of the altar is dressed in black. But I want to point out to the fact that she's dressed in black and gold. But I always say that we need to notice that they're not just simply black, but that they're black and gold. And in a sense, that says something about the experience of remembering the dead, when we've got our loved ones that we're praying for who've died, because we feel in the dark. They've left us. We feel abandoned. We feel as though it is night and we can't see. But there's gold that shines through that blackness, that darkness. We can't pretend that the experience of death is one that we look forward to in a physical sense, of course not. And we can't, for most of us at any rate, because our faith isn't strong enough to see beyond. But we're encouraged to see beyond by the experience of coming to pray for the dead and to say mass for the dead, especially in this month of November. And the colours, the church colours of there of, of black and gold help us do that. They symbolise, if you like, what we experience, what we feel that we're in the dark, but that we need to look beyond the dark towards the gold, the golden light that shines from what we can't see at the moment, which is what awaits us in paradise. And when you look at you know, funerals specifically of children, I can understand why parents might obviously go for the bright colours and everything else. But I don't think we should be afraid of black, should we? Black isn't morbid. It may make us feel a certain way, but it, I don't see it particularly as an inappropriate thing to do. No, I think in a sense what you can do is to say it's expressive of what we feel. It's expressive of where we are. And the answer is that of course we are feeling in the dark. We're in grief and that's something that if you like the church needs to lead us beyond that sense. And that's why it's perfectly legitimate and good to be using brighter colors to say, look, listen, look beyond the dark. But what we're doing in wearing black is sometimes to say, yes, but I know that you're in the dark, but look beyond the dark to the gold that shines around and shines through it. Light will come. Light will come, exactly, exactly. This is fascinating. Um, well, it's your church, so it's your choice. Where, <laughs> where are we heading next? Well, I think what we ought to do is to go to the altar of the patron of the oratory, St. Philip Neri, and say for a few words about St. Philip and about what he can teach us about hope and about living and about dying. Let's do that. I've brought you here to the altar of St. Philip Neri, the founder of the oratory. And I just wanted to tell you a story about St. Philip, really. So St. Philip Neri was working in Rome and 
um, worked among young people especially. He has a story to teach us about, about hope. There was a youngster that came up to him who was full of hope about all the things which were animating him. And St. Philip said to him, well, so what are, you, what are you hoping for? And he said, the equivalent of, let's say, oh, I'm hoping to do well in my exams. And then St. Philip said, and then? Well, and then I'm hoping to go to university. And then? Well, and then I hope to have got a good degree and get a good job somewhere. And then? And then I hope to meet somebody that I can maybe fall in love with somebody that I can start a family. And then? And then maybe I'll, you know, earn lots of money and live in a beautiful house and go on holidays. And then, well, and then my children will grow up. And then, and then maybe I'll have grandchildren. And then, and then, and then, and then. And then the last, and then. Well, and then I'll die. And then. And St. Philip said, always what you need to do is to walk lightly in this world in which we live. Walk lightly. Because what we need to do is never to take, never to invest our hopes in things which aren't going to, which aren't important. We need to constantly, we always invest our hopes in things which aren't important, but the trouble is we need to remind ourselves regularly of the fact that really, in the big picture, they're not that important. And I think that's something that's a good little lesson which Philip, I think, teaches us that we need to have in mind as we walk through life. It was this sort of typical way that Philip got people to, um, with a bit of humour, to try and help people understand about what they should be hoping for. Well, I know you're a chaplain for the time being at, at the school, and it strikes me that that conversation can be had now, those words of, of St. Philip. They, they'd work as much now as they ever would, wouldn't they? Absolutely. And I've, funny enough, just been preaching about it precisely to a whole lot of, which is why they're front of mind at the moment, because I've been talking to a whole lot of 13-year-olds on exactly that subject, about investing your hope in the right things. We've lost a sense... Because I suppose, in a sense, we've become so fixated about making this world the place that we need to hope for. And we should. But if we invest all of our hopes myopically, should we say, short-sightedly, on the issues in this world, well, they're always going to be dashed. Those hopes are never going to be fulfilled. And we don't realise that, but that's the truth. We know that. In principle, we understand that, really. So what are we hoping for in our lives? And we should be training ourselves to think beyond. And that's the way we prepare to die and the way that we can prepare for the next world in that sense, by anticipating the way we live in this world. And that perpetual lack of fulfilment, if we keep our minds in this world, it strikes me, it makes me think of that phrase, rest in peace. Because mm. only really if we look a bit beyond will we be able to rest in peace. Yes, but that phrase, rest in peace, reminds me of somebody that I was, um, a young woman who was dying of cancer in the local hospital, the Royal Marston Hospital, and, uh, and she said to me, now just listen, Father George, when I die, I don't want, will you please tell my husband and my young son, she was a young woman, it was very tragic, she said, don't let them say rest in peace. And I said, why not? And she said, well, I've been lying in bed resting for all of this time, suffering with this thing. I'm going towards life. And she said, whenever I think of life, I think of the fullness of life. I think of people running around, being full of energy. And that's where I'm going towards. I'm going towards, so I'm not resting. There's no question of me resting. I'm not going to be resting in that sense. That I've remembered that little lesson that I was taught at the deathbed of a, of a young woman. Um, because I think it's, it says a lot for us, really. Final question. Yeah. Well, thank you so much, first of all, for taking us around this beautiful church with so many ways to connect to the dead. Um, but I'm, you know, I'm hearing babies crying. I'm hearing police sirens. We are in the centre of London by a very major road. 
yet this is a place of peace, even in, amongst the hustle and, and the bustle. What would your advice be to, to those of us caught up in the extreme busyness of our, of our lives? I mean, what's a good way of focusing on a bit of peace, a bit of calm and, and centering our prayers on those who have died? I think the best thing to do is to think, listen, I have to live in the busy world. I have to live in the hustle and bustle. There's no point in pretending I'm, you know, it's all we were saying, oh, I've got, you know, we can't escape it. We can't, we can't escape the bustle of life, the noise, the noisiness of life, everything that's engaging us in one way or another. But what we can do is to frame it. And I think in beginning the day and ending the day, when we have making a moment of peace at the beginning of the day and at the end of the day, both to, at the beginning of the day to say, Lord, as I immerse myself in the world out there, help me to learn how to love properly, those that I come across, and then at the end of the day, recollecting the day that's gone past and, 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 and putting our, and training ourselves to say the words which should be on the front, forefront of our minds when we're passing from this world to the next, which is, into your hands, Lord, I commend my spirit, that we put ourselves into, into the hands of God just as we're about to go to sleep, and just in the same way that we put ourselves into the hands of God, just as we're going to sleep away from this world and awake in the world to come. Father George Bowen, thank you very much indeed. It's been a lesson in, in light in the darkness and, and to sit with our prayers and to sit with the Lord. And thank you for giving us a bit of hope and inspiration at the end of the day. Oh, it's my pleasure. <laughs> Bless you.